Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're in our study, What to Wear. We're at Colossians 3. Let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit might be our teacher, uh, that our hearts would truly be open today, that we would, we would not stop short of, uh, and, and just gain knowledge, but that we would allow your Spirit to change us, attitudes, actions, the transformation would take place. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On Saturday, July 9th, 2007, thousands of people, including state and city officials, gathered in Detroit's Hart Plaza for a funeral. They all watched as a horse-drawn carriage made its way through the streets carrying a, a small pine casket that was covered in a black wreath. Uh, The funeral was conducted by the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And it wasn't for a person. It was for a racial slur that we oftentimes refer to as the N-word. The governor of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, spoke of the Words demise, she said, good riddance to this vestige of slavery and racism. Say hello to a new country that invests in all of its people. Kwame Kilpatrick, uh, Detroit's mayor, said, good riddance, die, N-word. We don't want to see you around here anymore. And he went on to encourage black men to move away from the, the disrespect to black women and themselves, saying that you have to bury the N-word. Not just bury it, but bury all the the nonsense, he said, that comes with it. After its journey through the city, the coffin was ceremoniously placed in the Detroit Memorial Park Cemetery. Paul himself used a burial theme and a resurrection theme far more than just as a metaphor, but to literally say that we have had a death of our own, a death of our old self, when Christ died on the cross, where our old life died and now a resurrection of a new life that has been inserted in its place. And this new life demonstrates certain characteristics that were also consistent with the life of Christ. So that new self emerges, and we know it because there is kindness. We are merciful humble, enduring, forgiving, loving, just like we read here in Colossians 3. And when these characteristics emerge, we can be thankful that God has placed this new life in Christ. And when these three or these several characteristics are not in place in our life, even though we're believers, we know then that we are calling the shots and we are living in a fleshly lifestyle. So let's look at our next virtue here on our list. 
Johnny Carson, former host of NBC's Tonight Show. By the way, I miss Johnny. <laughs> uh, my favorite. Former host of the Tonight Show. Once offered this cynical take on Thanksgiving. He said, Thanksgiving is an emotional holiday. People travel thousands of miles to be with people they only see once a year and then discover once a year is way too often. (laughs) I hope that's not the case for you, but uh, Carson's humor points to the need for us to be patient and to bear with one another. The word has the idea of enduring and is often associated with patience as it is here in this passage. It means to put up with others when they fail us. To put up with others when they have disappointed us. Their behavior did not meet our expectations, so we, we bear with them. Now, this has a positive and a negative connotation. Negatively, it means to hold yourself back from one another. In other words, you will be tempted to go off on somebody. You'll be tempted to give them a piece of your mind. But the new man bears with that person, is patient. It doesn't chew the person out. It refrains or abstains from such an action. Now, to bear with also has a positive connotation. It means to carry or bear something. One translation has the idea of affirming as we forbear. In other words, when our flesh wants to set the person straight, forbearing always affirms, values, and respects You say, well, what does that mean? We can never confront? No, this is not about the absence of confrontation. What it is, is an ever-present kindness, ever-present affirmation that the grace of God supplies us. Ephesians 4.2 reiterates that we are to bear with one another, and then it adds, in love. Oh, that would not have that last little phrase on there. We might be able to grit our teeth and get through it, but it says, bear with one another in love. So here Paul takes that idea of patience, and he just takes it a step further. Can you also do good to them? I mean, it's it's one thing not to pay somebody back and not to hurt them. It's quite another when they've hurt us to show kindness toward them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, Love is patient and is kind in that beautiful love chapter. It puts up with people. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. It'd probably be a lot easier to understand this if that verse wasn't in the Bible. But when it says love covers a multitude of sins, I mean, there's no Greek construction that changes the meaning of that. Love covers a multitude of sins. But listen, they still need to get the truth. Love covers a multitude. They just need to get a piece of my Love covers a multitude of sins. Not just oversights, not irritants, sins. Oh, you know what? If it doesn't mean what we think it means, then you tell me what it means. (laughs) Love covers a multitude of sins. That is just radical for most Christians. 
so unusual. It's more than just gritting our teeth and bearing it. It's genuinely caring about the person. Willing to sacrifice for them. I've had to confront plenty of people in my 25 years of pastoring. People in adultery, people that are in all kinds of messes. But the first thing I have to deliver, and you know what I find, by the way? Almost everybody is aware of their sin. I don't have to remind them. But the first message they need to get is I love them. That they're valued, that they're important. Because one thing that goes along with sin is what? Shame. And shame makes you feel about that tall. Right? Love covers a multitude of sins. When love bears all things, you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't just sit there and criticize. It doesn't berate. It accepts a person. Uh, that's what happens when a spouse bears all things with a spouse. You're not trying to constantly change the other person. But, but wait a minute. I think by telling them for the 764th time, they will now get it. Love bears all things. Extending grace to somebody when you know they don't deserve grace. See, this is radical. Now, this doesn't mean we deny sin. It doesn't mean we deny consequences. It doesn't mean we deny confrontations. But what it means is you don't deny grace either. You don't deny kindness. Genuine, sincere love is inserted in every one of those situations. When we love this way, doesn't this mean then that we are going to set ourselves up to just have more hurt? I can hear it now. You know, let's talk about this for a second. Here's one thing I find about people who think that way, or just the way the world works, really. You know what I've noticed about getting hurt? Is that those who take that path and refuse to operate with this grace become much more controlling, much more stone-hearted, and you know what I find? They still get hurt. When you're controlling and manipulative, you still get hurt. Just as much as when you're kind, right? And so why don't we take responsibility for our own attitude and be the type of person that is kind and be the one who extends grace, even if the other person doesn't reciprocate? Bearing with one another. In the days when smoking sections were allowed on planes, and aren't you glad they're not anymore? Jan and I just took a flight this summer and glad that's not there anymore. But anyway, um, I have asthma, so I especially don't like uh, smoking. Or, but anyway, a passenger... Let me tell you the other things I don't like. I don't like... Uh, no, 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 sorry. A passenger started to light a cigar on a plane when the stewardess informed him that... Uh, this was back when you could smoke. That, that cigar smoking was not allowed unless it was all right with the other people that were sitting with you. And so... The stewardess turned to a woman sitting next to him and said, do you object to his smoking? And the woman very sternly said, I absolutely detest cigars. 
very stony reply. The stewardess then spoke to a, a young man who was sitting up near the front of the cabin and came back to report that that young man would not mind that the cigar-smoking passenger would sit next to him. So as the cigar-smoking man walked to his new seat, his former seatmate, the boisterous woman, said to the stewardess, I've been married to that man for 30 years, and I cannot stand his awful cigars. We chuckle, but is it not the daily habits, the daily irritants of everyday life that test our patience, that test our bearing with one another? I'm talking about the things that people do on a daily basis. Can love bear up under the thoughtlessness of others? I think what Paul is saying here is that, through the Holy Spirit, is that in Christ we take responsibility for our attitude toward those around us. And we can apply grace in every situation. You know, I I think about this, and I think about my own life. You can test this yourself as we meditate on this passage, but could it possibly be that our short fuse with others, our, our propensity, you know, to, to set others straight, our quick anger, our, you know, lack of patience with others, could it be that it's rooted in unforgiveness? Think about this for a second. I mean, I review my own flesh patterns, and I have them, okay? Uh, when I'm short with, with others, Uh, It's almost always rooted in something that I have yet to settle in my own heart, either with the person I'm short with or maybe with somebody else. Because one thing that happens, when you have unforgiveness that's in your heart, it just has a way of leaking out. We never sin on an island, do we? You, You have unforgiveness over here. It leaks out in other relationships. See, when a person has a, like a, a, a sense of control, I think they're trying to avoid getting hurt. Perhaps they had somebody maybe in their life that was very critical of them. And, you know, they're trying to manage all the relationships so that it's all through their very narrow lens, and what they end up doing is basically reproducing the very thing they're trying to avoid. They've never forgiven the person in their past, and it creates this kind of chain reaction, does it not? Listen, if if we have a tendency to be judgmental with others, highly critical, consider maybe how we have allowed a past offense to give us a quick trigger. When we don't forgive, it's not uncommon for us to try to protect ourselves. That's our flesh pattern. And and we don't want to be hurt again. And it just yields all kinds of negative behaviors. And almost always you find unforgiveness at the bottom of it. I don't think it's any wonder that the next virtue is addressing that. If one has a complaint against another, 
forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, if you were to ask everyone in this room, hey, are you a complainer? You wouldn't get many people to admit that, you know, they're a complainer. By the way, I should just say right now that what I'm talking about is a pattern, okay? Uh, and I think what Paul is after is a, is a trajectory of our life that exhibits these virtues. I'm not saying that you can't, you know, in a, in a bad moment maybe go off on somebody, but that's not what your life is characterized by. When your life is, is characterized by unforgiveness, you're walking in the flesh. When your life is characterized by these things that Paul is talking about, meekness, humility, you know, that shows that you're living in light of the, of the Christ who's in you. And so um, we're really talking about a, um, a characterization of, of most of our life. Anyway, nobody likes to be called a complainer, but I want us to consider what the word means. It means to have a grievance or to attach blame. Think about this for a second. To have a grievance or to attach blame. Think of all the ways in which we attach blame to somebody else. Somebody didn't do their job the way they should. Someone hurt me. Someone didn't give me recognition. Someone did not give me the job. Someone has not given me what I wanted. Someone has offended me. Someone interrupted me. Someone took my job, and now they're doing a better job at it than I am. Somebody likes another person more than they like me. Someone has more money than I do. Someone goes about his or her business in a way that just irritates the living daylights out of me. The point is, all of these are complaints that we are familiar with and we rub up against in our life. Are they not? Here's the formula for keeping your heart and your attitude healthy. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. The moment that you have a complaint against anyone, graciously forgive. But they didn't ask for forgiveness. You choose to forgive. Matters not what the other person does. We're not talking about reconciliation. That takes two parties. That I get. Forgiveness is my responsibility. Bury it at once with genuine forgiveness. The opposite of that is holding a grudge. Grudges are those long-standing grievances that we have with other people. Grudges are like a, a dark cloud over our hearts. And over a period of time, if you notice, it doesn't really matter whether we align with facts regarding the story of the original grievance that we have with a person. We just feel like this grudge is justified, this person irritates me, and 
that would like to tell our other friends about my grievance that I have with so-and-so. Why? Because I get more people agreeing with me. I'm right, at least right within my own darkened view. If I'm reading this passage right, yeah, you can correct me if you want, but grudges have no place in the Christian life. None. None. Are you nursing a grudge? Are you holding something against a spouse, against a workmate, against somebody here in church, against a friend? Mark it down. You are operating in the flesh. You are operating in the flesh. And listen, you have a zero chance for healing. I'm not talking about healing with the other person, but in the midst of the grudge, you will not heal. I'm talking about healing for you. It's like that old quote that's unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Here's what the person does who lives in light of the new life in Christ, all right? When I'm dependent upon Christ is in me, I take responsibility for my own heart, and I forgive, and I am patient, and I bear with that person. I take responsibility, I seek reconciliation. If that other person has no interest and rebuffs my efforts, so be it, but I will still forgive them. Now, it doesn't mean I don't have boundaries, but I can still forgive them. I'm not waiting around for the other person to apologize. And listen, (laughs) the Holy Spirit just hammers this point. Did Jesus ever get hurt by anyone? Did anybody ever take advantage of Jesus? Did Jesus ever have anyone mistreat him? Cut him off? Not give him the recognition he deserved? Did Jesus ever have somebody be nasty to him? Did anybody pridefully refuse to admit they were wrong about Jesus? Did Jesus ever have someone who tried to keep him from doing his job? (laughs) Did... (laughs) Like a flying dove rode the Holy Spirit... You need to listen to that. It's a message from God. (laughs) Did Jesus ever have anybody hate him? Yes, he did. All this happened to Jesus. But listen, did he ever retaliate when somebody did this to him personally? Did he ever really go off on somebody? No, he didn't. He never retaliated. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus give you what you really deserve? Aren't you glad he didn't? Because I'll tell you what, you know what all of us deserve? We deserve death. He didn't give us what we deserve. He gave us grace and continues to pour out us grace. As as humbly, as clearly as I can state it, he has forgiven us, and it is the height of short-sightedness the height of arrogance for us to then turn around and hold a grudge. It is the height of arrogance and pride to do that. 
when Jesus has given us all of this grace. John Perkins, African-American, tells how he was beaten in a Mississippi jail, being repeatedly kicked and stomped as he lay in a fetal position for protection. The beatings went on and on as he writhed in a pool of his own blood while inebriated officers took their turns using their feet and blackjacks. At one point, an officer took an unloaded pistol. Now, this was back in the 60s, mind you. Um, put it at Perkins' head and pulled the trigger. Uh, another man, um, much bigger than him, beat him till he was unconscious. As night wore on and it got even worse, during a conscious period, one officer pushed a fork down his throat. It was barbarous torture. And if anybody had a reason, good reason, to hate somebody, it was John Perkins. But this is how he responded. This is what happened in his own words. I quote, The Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind. It was the image of the cross. Christ on the cross. I blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached. Yet he was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed, killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying. But when he looked at that mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them, and he prayed to God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they don't know what they were doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. It's a profound and mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love, overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me on that bed full of bruises and stitches. God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white men in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. I know it's true because it happened to me. End quote. I don't know if I could do what John Perkins did if that happened to me. I have a great amount of admiration for a man like this, but I know this. What God gives me today, the people that he has in front of me, whoever comes into my path, he also gives me the power because Christ is in me to bear with them, to be patient, to love them, forgive them. You know what that means? Our excuses don't matter. They really don't. Recounting all the offenses, you are still responsible to forgive now, I realize in cases where there has been abuse, I'm not talking about jumping back into a, a relationship to, for further abuse. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not having your heart poisoned by unforgiveness. Our reasons for why we are bitter and why we hold an offense never will trump our responsibility to forgive. 
What must happen, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is that you confess, if you have a grudge, you confess and repent of the sin. You admit to God of the grudges that you have held, the bitterness that you have harbored. You choose to forgive. You choose to be patient. You choose to depend upon the Christ who is in you. You want to know when you are certain that God is bringing that healing in your heart? It's when you have expressed kindness and meekness and love for that person who hurt you. Until then, listen, until then, please don't say a word about your Christianity to anyone because we don't need another discontent, complaining, begrudging Christian to give more fodder to the world. We don't need any more marketing like that. We've had enough of that. Forgive. Let go of the grudge. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. You say on one hand you love God and you have a grudge, you're a hypocrite, you're a liar. Be quiet about the love for God stuff. And you learn how to forgive. And you learn how to understand the grace of God that's been given to you. And for you to turn around then and hold a grudge, that is arrogant, prideful sin. I don't care who it is, what they have done. If Christ is in us, you could see how Christ modeled this upon the cross. I've yet to see any of us die on a cross yet. So whatever the offense has been done against us, we know that with Christ in us, we have the power to forgive. And we can depend on that power to do just that. Louis Zamperini from the book Unbroken, great book if you haven't read it. He's a prisoner of war, tortured during World War II. And it wasn't until he realized the forgiveness of Christ that he was able to forgive his captors. Check this out. 